If no one sheds light on what is being done in the darkness, it will never stop. One in three girls and one in six boys are sexually abused and told to hush. Breaking the silence is the first step to healing. Healing is a lifelong journey. Find your voice. Your story matters. Pain put me into hiding. Purpose called me out. May the silence be broken. Thanks for listening to the One Voice Podcast. It's a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien and now Nicole Braddock Bromley. Yay, we're back and we have a really cool special guest with us today. Her name's Chessie Prout. She is a high school sexual assault survivor, and she's the author of a book called I Have the Right To, a high school survivor's story of sexual assault, justice, and hope. Chessie is now in college, um, but she has been such a strong, brave voice at such a young age um, for all of us survivors of sexual violence. And just really excited to have you with us today, Chessie. Thanks for carving out some time. Thank you so much for having me here today. Yeah. Well, Chessie, I would love to just dive right into your story. I know that you've been You've been sharing um, lots of high schools and just empowering, especially young girls, to let let them know that they have a right to their bodies, that they have a right to be respected and, and to have a safe place to learn because you um, unfortunately did not have that. And um, I know that you started a campaign called I Have the Right to Campaign in collaboration with PAVE and um You've just been doing a lot of really good work, but at the same time, you're you're a college student. You started this as a teenager. I mean, you went after it, <laughs> and yeah. we're just all so very proud of you. And I know that the toll that that can take, um, especially as you're just beginning your own healing journey. So I want to kind of dive into a lot of that, but um, just to kind of start, would you just kind of start from the beginning and share a little bit with our audience who is mostly survivors like you? Absolutely. Um, when I was 15 years old, or when I was 14, actually, I went to boarding school for the first time. Mm. Um, my parents were moving back to Asia because of my dad's job. And I had just spent, let me see, like two or three years in the US for the first time ever. I was mm. raised in Japan um, and I loved it in America. So I wanted to stay for high school. Mm -hmm. And my older sister was at this school. My dad had gone to this school. Right, right. They even started the Japanese language program for him there when he was a student um, a while ago. And wow. so I was excited and I felt like it would be a safe place. I was so excited because I knew it would be a place that I would be at for four years, no matter what. Hmm. I thought that would be the constancy in my life instead of, you know, because we had to leave Japan because of the earthquake in 2011. Hmm. So I was really scared of having the pull, the rug pulled up from under my feet again by a natural disaster or something traumatic like that. Hmm. And so I went, um, confident in myself and my ability to take care of myself. Mm -hmm. I was so excited to make my own bedtime to, you know, mm -hmm. decide when I get to clean my room, you know, mm -hmm. what I get to eat for dinner. Um, it's exciting to have that much independence when you're just 14 years old. Sure. But and a prestigious back, boarding school that you could yeah, trust. 
Absolutely. And they had so many different programs that allowed me to do all of my favorite things. Mm -hmm. That was something that was difficult in Florida because it's such a place where you got to drive to do things. And so my mom had to deal with, you know, me and my younger sister and all of her activities. And so at this boarding school, I could do everything I've ever wanted. I could do my piano classes. I could play volleyball. I could, you know, go watch sports games um, and it's all walking distance. So, mm. you know, I was so excited for this amount of independence, but mm. looking back now, no 14 year old should have that much independence in a mm. place that 19 year olds also live, mm. um, especially when they live next door. Um, wow. And without the amount of parental um, guidance that you would have in a home or in a smaller community. Um, so I was 15 by the spring of my freshman year of high school when I was sexually assaulted by a senior um, who was graduating. He, the couple days after he assaulted me, he won the highest award in the school during graduation, the rector's award. And it was sickening. It was sickening for me to see this behavior be lauded and applauded by school administrators. and, you know, it turns out a couple of years later and into the criminal justice system that the school knew about his predatory behavior before I was even sexually assaulted. They oh. had reports against him already oh. and they still chose to give him this award. Um, and it took them a couple of years to even rescind the award after he was charged criminally with a felony. So wow. there's just a huge history of abuse and silence um, at this institution that I had no idea about going in at 14 years old. Sure. And this has been something that my family and I have been fighting to pull back the curtain on for the last couple of years, ever since this happened to me. And ever since I found out that he had done this to six other girls before me. Oh no! Um, and that was known. Yes. Yeah. There was just no justice. Right. No. Yeah. It just continued on. It's just what happens. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's the price of admission at wow. a place like that. Mm-hmm. I've heard you um, talk before just about, you know, this, the misogyny that seems to kind of just be an unspoken almost in these types of institutions. And we've seen that in many places, even, you know, even the church and, mm-hmm. Everything, especially in a prestigious boarding school where it was formerly an all-male institution, right? Right. Yeah. And things are about, you know, tradition and and status and, you know, it's hard, I think, as a woman to come into a place like that and feel that you even have a voice. Right. And I thought that I was going to be, you know, protected more by having an older sister who is a senior Mm. at the school, but that actually put an additional target on my back as a freshman to then be targeted by the boys in her class. Um, They, they, they're the man who assaulted me and his friends um, had a competition going on part of the senior salute, which is a tradition that happens at the school. That's, basically institutionalizing statutory rape. Um, They choose their their younger counterparts to go after um, aggressively Mm -hmm. for hookups. Mm -hmm. 
And they had started making a list um, when I think I was just just turned 15. So I was still like 14 when a lot of this stuff was happening and they were talking about me over email. Mm-hmm. Um, and they mm-hmm. made a list of girls that they wanted to, you know, prey upon. And my name was in capital letters in the middle of the list. Oh. Um, and seeing all of that stuff during the trial. And I'm very lucky that I was able to get past the school's lawyers and that my counselor at school did the right thing. And when she heard about my assault, she immediately reported it to the police, not to the school. Hmm. And I was able to go to the hospital, have a rape kit done, speak to a detective, and they decided to bring charges against him as the state of New Hampshire. Um, Okay. But seeing all of this, seeing all the evidence, seeing all of the premeditation behind their praying um, caused a second wave of victimization that, Mm. which, which caused post-traumatic stress that I'm still dealing with to this day. Sure. Sure. I think that it, it is a second hit. It's like, you're Mm -hmm. willing to say this happened to me, but then understanding, you know, the motive behind it and the planning, I can imagine that that feels very debilitating. Like you're, you had no control and Chessie, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. You know, you, you didn't deserve it. There's nothing you could have done. You know, you didn't, ask for it. And I just, I just hate that you have gone through this and obviously, you know, you've listened to our podcast and, you know, we talk a lot about how healing is absolutely lifelong. And Mm -hmm. it's something that, you know, you can find your voice early and you can be so brave and, and talk about it, but it doesn't mean that it's always a positive, empowering thing. It's there's times when I know for me, myself as a survivor, you know, there's a lot of dark days and there's a lot of moments of wanting to be silent again and to take care of my own heart and mind. And and that's normal. Um, and I'm sure you can probably relate to that in many ways, especially with the PTSD, but I really think it's amazing in your story, how, you know, you, you bravely sought justice and you went through the criminal trial. Um, was that something you think you would have chosen or was it like you were kind of thrown into it because you were a minor? You think you would have chosen it if you could have, or would you have not at this point looking back? I mean, throughout this whole process, I was just trying to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all I had in my heart. Um, I had the pain, I had the trauma, and I knew that this wasn't going to be for nothing. I knew that I had to do the right thing. And when I was 15, that seemed like going through the criminal justice system. Mm. And I do think that that was the right thing for me to do at the time. Mm -hmm. And even looking back, because through the investigation, through everything, we were able to shed so much light on the criminal underbelly of the elite prestigious world of this boarding school. Mm. And I've been contacted by so many other survivors at the school um, from decades before I was there Mm -hmm. who have reached out to me and said, because you came forward with your story, I was able to grapple with my own sexual abuse at this school. Thank you for bringing it to light. Wow. And 
hearing those and receiving those letters and emails and phone calls and Facebook messages, Mm -hmm. you know, it makes me think that that was the right thing to do at that time. Yeah. But it was not easy. Right, right. Far, Can you talk far a little bit easy. about that? I think it helps to just bring a little reality to a lot of us who have who have done the legal battle. And you don't mm-hmm. you not only did the legal battle, you went to battle not only against the person who assaulted you, but also against an institution. You know, it reminds me so much of like the USA gymnastics stuff and mm-hmm you know, so many of these institutions who are silencing, who are protecting the abuser, but we have got to have Chessie Prouts that rise up against it and say, it's not just about this one person. It's about the whole system, you know? So I'm so, I'm so proud of you, but I know that it wasn't easy. Could you talk a little bit about just the reality of what that looked like? Yeah. And thank you so much, Nicole. It's, it, feels good to be told that every once in a while. Um, but yeah, basically in the criminal justice system, I was the state's primary witness. Um, that was what I was called and I was given a victim advocate, which I think is absolutely necessary in any case of violent crime. Um, that happens, having an advocate there to tell you what's going on, to be on your side, to be your advocate um, is absolutely necessary because I basically had, you know, a crash course in the legal system. Mm -hmm. I studied it. I learned about it. I learned what my rights were. I tried to look up, you know, different things that would help me throughout this process. Um, and I, I mean, I even did mock trial in high school afterwards because I was so, you know, passionate about changing the criminal justice system and how we treat victims that, yeah. you know, I wanted to practice it and do it. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. But it, during the process, victims aren't given the same amount of rights as the defendants are mm. um, in many cases when states haven't adopted Marcy's law and this, I mean, my family and I were, were really helped and treated well by the, the prosecuting attorney's office in New Hampshire. They made sure that we were well-informed, that we knew when trial, like when hearing dates were happening. Mm-hmm. And during the trial, they let us go in the back door of the courthouse because there was so much media in the front and I was still trying to protect my anonymity. Um, but just being, no one prepares you for being in a courthouse, in a courtroom filled with ex-classmates who are there to support your perpetrator, with reporters who are live tweeting from the back row, his family members who have to sit next to us during the trial, you know, teachers, school administrators, nothing prepares you to have to be in a room like that and have to walk in front of the defendant's table to get to the prosecution's table to, you know, go and testify. I didn't know that I would have to point out the defendant in the room and have to identify him and have to look at him again. Mm -hmm. That was severely traumatizing. Um, I imagine. Yeah. It, they tried their best to do as much as they could for me, but at the end of the day, I was just a witness who needed to 
be on the stand and be cross-examined and be on the stand for a couple of days and have to tell the deepest, darkest things that have ever happened to me and been done to me by somebody else Mm. in a room full of strangers. Mm. And that, you know, nobody prepares you for that. Um, It's amount of, it's a kind of vulnerability that takes a lot from you. Um, And especially because this was all happening during the first two weeks of my junior year of high school. Oh my goodness. Right. I had a lot of homework to do and I wasn't, I wasn't getting it done. (laughs) I'm sure I can imagine your, your whole world was just turned upside down. And, you know, I remember when I first disclosed my abuse and I knew that this was going to be, you know, we, we reported it. I knew that this was going to be a complete upheaval of my life. Mm-hmm. And just thinking about going through all that you're talking about, it became so overwhelming to me. And I was so scared. And the whole process for me ended when my stepfather took his life prior to our first court date. And it all kind of dropped. And I think about you know, what I would have had to experience and the amount of support I would have needed. Like, I am so Mm -hmm. grateful that you have had um, what seems like a really good support system around you. You had two parents who provided a pretty secure environment for you, believed you, made sure you were okay. From what I've read, they focused on you, not themselves, Mm -hmm. um, and really wanted to learn and do what they could do to fight for your voice to be heard. I think that probably really carried you at times when you felt alone. Absolutely. And I also had a therapist who I had been seeing since 2011, since the earthquake in Naples, when mm. or in Florida, when I was in Naples, um, when I was first diagnosed with depression and anxiety, mm-hmm. um, And to have somebody who was in my corner, who knew me before the assault, who knew who I was, knew my heart and was able to advocate for me to my parents and help educate them too on what would be best for my healing um, was really amazing. And so my parents kind of let me make decisions on my own to help Mm -hmm. regain my autonomy um, that I had lost in the assault. And wow. of course they were still my parents. I was still a kid, a minor, um, yeah. but they, they let me make decisions to, you know, mm-hmm. help give me back that control, which um, I really appreciated. Yeah. It's interesting to think about the control piece because it was like at one point they really let you go to be independent and have all the control, right? Then this horrific nightmare happens to you. I imagine they they were thinking, okay, now we want to make sure we don't do that again. We want to take the control back, but that would have been the worst thing for you. You needed the control back because Mm -hmm. obviously through the assault, it was taken from you. What? Yeah. I feel like it would be a a hamster wheel as a parent trying to navigate that, but really allowed you to lead the conversation. And I think that is something that most parents need to know to let the survivor, let the child lead the conversation, to let them know what mm-hmm. what you needed and you were able to do that. Um, I know you had mentioned earlier, um, it was important through the process as you were going through um, the criminal system and um, the trials to protect your anonymity. 
And I know for me as well, that was very important to me. And I, my mom really wanted to protect me as I, when I came forward for the first time, I didn't want people to know this is what happened to me. And I know you didn't want your name attached to it. And I know that that also did not last very long. Can you talk about that? Um, Yeah, of course. It's during the trial was when my name was leaked for the first time. Um, The prosecuting attorneys explained to us that it's a defense tactic to use my name. The defense attorney would use my name as many times as he could in talking a sentence. So maybe it would slip through the radars that they were because there was there was TV crews in the courtroom. There were video cameras, you know, Uh they were taping it inside. And so they I think that's how my name might have slipped through once or twice there. vile. Yeah, but then came the websites. Um, mm. There were a lot of hate sites that are dedicated to exposing victims of sexual assault. Um, and these websites, you know, had my name, my email address, my mom's email address, our home address in Florida, wow. our phone numbers. Um, we got awful, awful, awful things. And that that scared me a lot. That was very scary. Um, Mm -hmm. People were able to write death threats, rape threats, um, all these different things on me and my sisters. Um, Mm -hmm. And so when you would search my name on the internet, the first thing that would come up on Google was the St. Paul school slut. Um, And when you'd search my older sister's name, those things would come up too. And she was in the middle of applying for internships and jobs in college. Yeah. So this, all of this was not only affecting me, but my family, um, my mom, my dad, my dad took a medical leave of absence to help take care of me in the aftermath. And then when he went back to his job in Hong Kong, they purposefully flew him out there and then fired him. Um, And because he had taken time off, which is not allowed. Um, You can't, in their company, you can't fire somebody after they've taken a medical leave of absence um, or family leave. Mm -hmm. And so that was a whole thing ensuing. Um, And his boss had told him that when my dad told his boss about what had happened to me, his boss said, I hope your daughter learns better judgment next time. So this, there's a lot of different impacts that this has on a family. Um, It's a crime that impacts the whole family and the people surrounding the victim. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. But that didn't shut you up. Oh, no. Yeah. In this, (laughs) in this. From what I know about your story, it wasn't very long after that. That was from what I picture of what I know, it was like the fire got, lit underneath you because that's Mm -hmm. when you decided to come forward publicly. You went on the today show. You were like, all right, if my identity is going to be out there, then I know that you told to the today show Hoda Godby, you said, I want to reclaim my name. I want to reclaim my story. And that is such a powerful statement. It was after during the civil suit that St. Paul's um, they threatened to reveal my name in the, the civil mm-hmm. suit. They said they would not go forward unless my parents and I were made um, not anonymous. Um, and 
again, that's another tactic by institutions um, to stall proceedings and also to bully the witness, the victims into submission. Mm-hmm. And when my parents told me that, I st- I remember this day clear as a bell in their office. And they were so scared to tell me that this was going on. And I read through the entire legal filing and I just laughed at them and said, they think this is going to shut me up. (laughs) Please, I've just started talking and I'm not going to stop. So there have been so (laughs) many media outlets that have been trying to get me to go on their shows or speak to them. Um, Mm -hmm. And the Today Show, NBC, they, they... had my family come up to New York and they had a sit down with the president of NBC news for a two hour long meeting. Um, not with any promises, not me saying, yes, I'm going to do the show. Here's the meeting. Mm-hmm. It was just for me to get to talk to the head who was Deborah Turnus at the time and mm-hmm. tell her what it feels like to be shown on the news as, you know, a nameless faceless victim, how that affected me and how I believed that victims should be treated in the news going forward. Mm. All of this was incredible. And they let me have so, so much control over how my story was told and how I, I told my story. They said I could come forward without my name, without my face. You know, they could blur my face and, or only give an initial or something. And I said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to do this and I'm going to try to become a beacon of hope for other survivors to Mm. come to. I want other people, people at my school, people that I've known throughout my whole life who might not know that this had happened to me to be able to come to me and say, you know, the same thing happened to me. Can you please like help or like help me deal with this because I've had so much help to deal with it. Mm. Wow. It sounds like a lot to take on your back, girl. Like you're yeah. like, I'm going to actually um, just put a magnifying glass to institutions that are being mm-hmm. silent to this horrific sexual violence and allowing it to continue. I'm going to fight this guy in court. And I'm also going to be a place for survivors to come if they need help, if they've been through the same thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> well, I had I had the support of other advocates who had done this way before I, I even knew what mm-hmm. consent or sexual assault was, mm-hmm. you know, these women and men who had been doing this since I was born, basically, they were there to help me in a way that I knew I wanted to help others. So I had the support of Angela Rose and Delaney Henderson from PAVE. They were physically with me on the day of the taping for the Today Show. And Angela was nine months pregnant when she was there. (laughs) She took a train from DC and came when she was nine months pregnant about to pop. And that, you know, that meant the world to me. Yeah. That sounds so true of what I know of her too. That's amazing. Yeah. We all need women like that, you know, that are behind us to mm-hmm. propel us to that next step. I'm so glad that you you found that not just in your family, but with among other advocates and such. That's awesome. Um, I wonder your thoughts on just this whole, like the hazing stuff, the ritualized statutory rape stuff that we're hearing about the traditions within misogynist institutions. Like how do you feel we can put an end to this, the the fostering of this kind of um, climate within institutions, permitting it, condoning it? 
what is it just talking about it? Is it is it sharing our stories and sort of the Me Too movement within these places? What are your thoughts? Well, I have a pretty radical view on this, and I believe it is to shut these institutions down. Whoa. Um, all right. Yeah. In in the case of this boarding school, there is now finally a group of alumni from the school who are also rallying behind the survivors and are calling for the school to fix and change its problems or else it should be shut down. Mm. It has such a pervasive base and bedrock based on misogyny, um, elitism, and sexual violence that they don't deserve to be molding the minds of young people because they're molding them through trauma. Mm. And that's unfair to kids everywhere. That's right. I mean, all we can do is keep telling our stories, use our voices and come together. There is nothing more powerful than a community of people who come together to speak out Mm -hmm. and to hold our institutions accountable, to ask questions of our institutions, to ask questions of the places that we love. Even my high school in Florida that I had a great experience at, I acknowledge classmates of mine, some of my best friends didn't have the best experiences there and that the institution itself is flawed. And that if you love a place, you want it to become better. You want it to acknowledge its flaws and the trauma that it's caused other people and apologize for it and move forward. Mm -hmm. So I think it's time to put a mirror up to all of these institutions and, you know, say that there's no, there's no harm in saying I'm wrong or I don't know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Even as an individual, I, you know, I'm learning to do that within my family structure right now during the quarantine. I mean, I'm with all five of my family members for the first time in nine years. And <laughs> I've had to sit down and say, oh my God, I am wrong. You are right. I am so sorry. <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, it, it comes from different systems, from the family to the school to even a country. You know, we've got to be able to say, okay, I'm wrong. Let me learn. That's really good. It it takes humility, uh, willingness to just be humble and listen. And I think Mm -hmm. that's a big part of what is needed right now is especially just across the board with all the things that we're dealing with in, in our world today and among different types of groups of people, we just need to be willing to sit down and listen to someone else's story. And how can we be a part of change there? How can we be a part of a solution? How can we have empathy over something maybe we don't understand, but we know it's wrong for them? That's really, really good, really powerful. I wonder your thoughts too on, you know, I think it crosses over into something that matters to me, which is the college culture, you know, sexual assault on mm-hmm. college campuses is it's horrendous. The statistics, what are your thoughts on the title nine process? I have a lot of thoughts and feelings on the title nine process, especially since the, I'm glad I asked. <laughs> yeah, since the federal government has rolled back the regulations and has yeah. protected even less survivors Absolutely. of sexual assault. Um, I, I go to an all-women's college. I'm at Barnard College in New York City, um, okay. but it's under the branch of Columbia University. So mm. there are plenty of issues with Title IX, both at my school and at the university at large, um, and definitely in the country. I, I think if anything, we should be giving survivors more protection and more rights. Um, I think a lot of the guidance that that is now in place 
is not as trauma-informed as I would like. Um, and I think the system at large in the criminal justice system too is not trauma-informed as I would like as a victim either. Of course, now that's me speaking as a victim and survivor of sexual assault who's had to go through the system. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this, this whole lack of protection for students who are just trying to get an education, who are not the reason for these things happening to right. them. This right. is something that somebody else has done to them and yet mm. they suffer all of the consequences. Mm-hmm. Having to leave school, having to you know leave classes because that's where their perpetrator is in. That's where that's yeah. where they've met their perpetrator. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It's and it's such I a know. long process. Yes. I mean, it can last your entire college career. Yeah, and then what's the purpose? Right. What is the purpose of going through all of that mm-hmm. when it's not going to help you when you need it the most? Yeah. So I think that there needs to be, again, another magnifying glass put up to that process. And I think the Department of Education needs to listen to survivors. Uh They've had roundtables, they've had discussions with advocates, with, you know, people who have been doing the research, doing the work, Mm -hmm. who know what a trauma-informed response looks like, and yet they aren't listening. So I think this is another instance of, you know, the phrase, listen to survivors, believe survivors needs to be actually followed (laughs) that, you know, our voices need to be heard in this process. Yeah. It just seems like over and over again, we see institutions and groups constantly protecting the accused. It's just like, Mm -hmm. it's so important to make sure that no one is accused wrongly. It's right. like more important than anything else. That's the message that's constantly being sent, I feel like. Yeah. And yeah. how do we continue to roll out, you know, new laws, new rules, all these things? Like we are modernizing our times and we're understanding like every year there's more and more of us survivors speaking out, but yet we get more and more walls put up <laughs> against us. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I thought we would be kind of on the same page with that. It's yeah. very, very yeah. frustrating, very frustrating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think, again, it comes back to we collectively have to be a voice against this. We cannot be silent. We have to speak up. And when people are victim blaming or not believing or all of those things, we can't just let that slide by. We can't allow leaders to continue to you know, speak these victim blaming things. We can't continue to allow misogyny to rule our world. Right. You said before I read this in an interview, you said that you don't care if you're called a bitch or bossy. You said when men speak their mind, they're called confident. They're called leaders. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And coming from a family of three sisters and a strong mother, you know, I'm so proud of my little sister. She's Mm -hmm. 14 years old. She Mm -hmm. has grown up with consent and sexual assault in her life, which Mm -hmm. I always am so devastated by, but also a little bit grateful for because she has the most 
unique and strong voice that I have ever heard. Mm. And it doesn't help when I'm asking her to help me with the dishes or to take the dog out (laughs) because she knows, she knows very well how to say the word no, Um, Mm. which makes me happy because as a kid, I was taught, you know, to always say, yes, um, how can I help? And, you know, try to be as quiet and acquiescent as as possible. So yeah, I'm proud of her for standing up and knowing her rights. Um, that has been a great blessing. Absolutely. I think that that gives me hope. I think about, yeah, your sister. I think about my children, Mary's kid, uh, just the next generation. They are learning from us. And as hard as this year has been, I think it's what honestly has been needed to really shake this world up and to, to help us find each other and mm-hmm. to help us to really educate the next generation on how are we going to upend rape culture, right? Right. How are we going to change this for you? And a lot of it is just talking to them and they're going to be the ones to make the change. Right. That's inspiring. It's good to hear that about your sister. I feel very much the same way, just about, Mm -hmm. you know, the young ones that are coming up now. They're so smart. They're so they're so thoughtful. They are compassionate. They have the empathy, but they also um, know how to get things done. They're not willing to just sit by. They want to be a part of change and they want to do it now. Like there's nothing that's going to hold them back just because they're a teenager, just like you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Amazing. So where's your passion now, Chessie? Where's life taking you? You're at, you're in college, you're studying. Um, What, what are you planning next? You've already done everything. So <laughs> like what's now? Yeah, I, I always say I'm taking things a little bit backwards. I started writing a <laughs> memoir and now I'm into my first internship ever this year. So, so funny. Yes. Kind of, I've been doing things backwards. Yeah. My my next door neighbor last year um, was a nice older man who was writing his memoir too. And I said we were two two people writing memoirs. Um walking our dogs in the morning with our coffee when I was on my gap year. So I love it. That, <laughs> so awesome. that was fun. But yeah, now I am taking what I'm passionate about, what I've been passionate about for my whole life, which is mm-hmm. television and movies and TV and writing. And I'm taking what I am also passionate about, which is people's rights and consent education and putting those things together. Um, mm. I, I go into everything with the lens of, you know, survivor, being a survivor and, you know, respecting survivors and lifting survivors up, whether it be in, you know, psychology classes or Mm -hmm. English classes, you know, Mm -hmm. that's not something that I can separate from who I am and how I see things nowadays. Yeah. Um, And it, and I shouldn't have to separate that, No. but Mm -hmm. now I'm, I'm interning at a film production company. Um, and I'm having a great time there reading scripts and trying to make sure that women are represented correctly and respectfully wow. choose to take on and to offer my perspective as a survivor when, you know, different things pop up and in projects that they're developing and they really listen to me, which has been amazing. Um, it's a small company. So I feel comfortable speaking up. I am able to speak up and they encouraged me to speak up, which has been really, really great. Yeah. 
Oh, absolutely. That must be like a breath of fresh air considering yeah. all you've gone up against for most of your life. Yeah. Yeah. And on top of that, we continue to do work with the, our nonprofit here in DC. I have the right to, mm-hmm. um, I've taken a step back since I started school because school is a lot, but, um, <laughs> but my parents have been, have taken the reins and they, continue to work to try to help schools, encourage schools to include consent education in their curriculum, to bring in specialists, to bring in my parents or me to talk to kids and parents about these issues and how their community can grow and learn from incidences and things that happen in their own communities. Um, And Yeah, we continue to work with different organizations to help elevate this conversation of consent education and, you know, emphasize its importance because this affects every single person in the world. Everybody knows a survivor, Mm -hmm. whether they've told you or not. Um, And I think that's always something that's very important to keep in mind. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So what are you doing to take care of yourself these days? Walking my dog, mm-hmm. <laughs> which you might be able to yeah. hear barking in the background. <laughs> <laughs> hey, JJ. Yeah. <laughs> so taking him on walks. I mean, like I've made this whole new fitness regime that I've been doing. It takes me a while to get my head into things and to get working. <laughs> a lot of times I procrastinate a lot uh-huh. um, because I always seem to have a lot on my mind, but okay. I've made a pact to myself to take care of my physical, oh dog, (laughs) and my physical and mental health. And I realized that my physical health is very much tied to my mental health. Mm -hmm. And so this summer I've made a huge change in how I live um, and how I take care of myself and you know, funnily enough, I'm working in TV-ish now, but I don't watch as much TV as I used to. That's funny, yeah. Um, instead, I spend more time, you know, staying present and, you know, meditating in my own little way, like, mm-hmm. which is just me staring at trees in our backyard. And my sisters eventually come up to me and say, what are you doing? What? Are you, why are you just standing there doing nothing? And yeah. I say, because doing nothing is really nice sometimes. Yeah. Mary yeah. says that a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Stare at a wall. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 That's mm-hmm. all you need sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. You just clear your mind. Mm-hmm. Nope. That's good. I love it. And I also love that as soon as we introduced your dog, JJ, that's when I know. he started speaking. <laughs> it's like he was just waiting for no, us. And to- I'm wearing headphones too. I don't know how he heard that. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Oh, Chessie, you are just such a a firecracker. I am incredibly proud of your journey and just your voice, your willingness to be known and to continue this fight. There was something that I meant to ask earlier. It has to do with your perpetrator. He's released, right? Yes. Yeah. He only spent two months in jail. That's insane. That's a real common thing for a lot of us that we have to face him. Have you seen him? No, no. I, I, yeah. And I'd be afraid for him if I ever saw him again. I love it. I love it. We have a punching bag downstairs. And that's one thing that I will never tire of doing. I never fatigue when I'm at the punching bag. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Girl. 
So how has that affected you? I mean, I know for many of us who have gone through that, you know, there's so many survivors that we have walked with that just felt so gypped. And then not only that, the fear of seeing that person um, walking the streets, like what, Mm -hmm. how has your response been to that? Well, oh, I have so much to say on this topic. (laughs) I'm I'm trying to figure out where to start. Um, First of all, I think that in the system, you know, one, there are a lot of statistics on Rain's website about, you know, perpetrators who even see a day in jail. Only 2% of perpetrators ever see a day in jail. Um, And I think that should inform the way that the criminal justice system changes and reforms because, Mm -hmm. you know, part part of me out of self-preservation and, you know, wanting to feel safe says, I want there to be another way, another way for perpetrators of sexual violence to receive help, counseling, you know, psychological help to never do this again, Mm -hmm. especially because their sentences are usually so light. And so I want to be part of that change going forward that, you know, takes into consideration the fact that many perpetrators were also victims themselves at some point in their lives, and they didn't receive the kind of help that they needed Mm -hmm. to not transform their hurt into more hurt. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's extremely important that, you know, states have systems of psychological help for sex offenders. Um, Only like a handful of prisons in the United States have these programs for sex offenders, rehabilitation programs. Mm -hmm. And that is in prison, which, you know, a lot of sex offenders don't see a day in prison. Like it's, it's a difficult topic because, you know, part of me, you know, just doesn't care what happens to him that wants me to just be just wants him to be punished for what he's done, the pain that he's caused my family, me, you know, the lasting effect that his actions have had on my life. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, I know that he's done this before and I do not want him to ever do it again. So I think there should be something in place that helps perpetrators get the help that they need so that they don't hurt anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Because Who's to say it won't? I mean, right. That's such a short slap on the wrist. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. And then how do you feel? Is this something that like, does it cause you to live in fear? Has it changed your routine, your daily routine, the way you live your life, where you live? Are these things that you have to think about because you know, he's still out there? Oh yeah. When I was, when I moved back to Florida after leaving St. Paul school, I took up boxing, um, that, that was a way that this has changed my life. When I was at school, all I wanted was to be able to take a self-defense class. Yeah. I realized I like self-offense much better. Ooh. Um, so I, I have, you know, that's, that's been one of the ways that I've tackled my fear and also the way that I froze during my assault. Mm-hmm. When I talk about this still, I have to make sure that I'm moving my toes, that I'm tapping my legs, that I'm constantly being aware of my body because mm-hmm. I still disassociate. I still, mm-hmm. you know, have that blood freezing fear of being overtaken. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting because this has been a reoccurring nightmare that I've had since I was a little kid. 
I would be swimming in the ocean and a shark would come up from behind me mm. and I would be swimming as fast as I could, but I wouldn't go anywhere. Mm. So I had had this fear for a long time of, you know, trying my hardest to try to survive, but yeah. to not, not be able to protect myself. Mm. And I thought that was really shocking when I, you know, discovered that in therapy with my therapist that wow. you know, this has been a fear that I've had for a long time. And in the moment when I needed my strength the most, it left me, I froze, um, which oh. is a normal physiological response to trauma. And yeah, absolutely. so, yeah, I've worked really hard to stay present in my body to, you know, realize that the f- me freezing was not my fault. Um, mm-hmm. and that I shouldn't have to need to protect myself, but I find a lot of empowerment now in, finding my strength physically, mm-hmm. um, you know, feeling strong, feeling healthy, that makes me feel happy. Mm. And, you know, going to school now, I have to see a lot of St. Paul's kids every day um, in, really? in New York City. Yeah. Um, wow. At Columbia's campus, um, on Barnard's campus, you know, I run into kids a lot of the time. And when I first started, when I was a freshman there, it was really, really hard. It Mm. was shocking for me to see them. Yeah. I oftentimes didn't even remember their names. I just remembered their faces and that would cause me to freeze. Um, And I'd get mini panic attacks. I'd lose feeling in my fingers and my heart would just start to pound. And I would kind of black out a little bit in my eyes. Um, And I, and I realized that that was because I still felt like I didn't belong on that campus in my school. I felt mm. like this wasn't my school yet. I didn't deserve to be here. I, I had that shame still in me, yeah. even yeah. though I was a public advocate, you know, wow. yeah. but two years in I'm or two years after that, I'm a junior now. Mm-hmm. I, I see those kids walking around campus and I ran into one of them at my friend's apartment for a volleyball party that we were having. Mm-hmm. And I stood there chest held high and said, I deserve to be here. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who should feel embarrassed or shameful when they see me, not me. Wow. I did nothing yeah. wrong. I stood up for myself and I deserve to be here. Wow. You're owning your story. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's very powerful. And so how, how did people respond to that? Oh, they, they don't acknowledge me. They don't, um, they don't acknowledge me and Mm -hmm. I'm grateful for that because I've got a lot of pent up anger (laughs) that, you know, I, and you know how to box. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I know, (laughs) I know how to fight. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But of course, physical violence is not the, the response that should not be the response, um, to pain like that. (laughs) Although my punching bag receives a lot of that. (laughs) (laughs) I bet. I bet. Hey, we all have our thing. Yeah. And really them not acknowledging you is probably a blessing in disguise for them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They don't know what's coming. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They don't, they didn't know my strength back then and they don't know it now either. I I wish they'd learn. (laughs) Well, the world has certainly learned your strength, Jesse. You you. are such a brave, strong soul and gosh, we're so grateful that you spent some time with us today. This has been such a treat. You are just a brilliant, amazing young woman. And we're just really excited to see where life takes you. 
So I hope you'll stay in touch with us and um, absolutely. Yeah. Let us know how we can come alongside you and all of these amazing things that you're doing. And if our listeners would like to learn more or support you, how would they do that? We have a website called eyeoftheright2.org and I'm also on Twitter and that's Chessie Prout. And we're also on Instagram at eyeoftheright2 as well. Well, thank you, Chessie. This has been such a treat. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, write a review if you heard something you liked, even invite others to listen so we can be on this healing journey together. You can check us out on Facebook or go to IamOneVoice.org.